This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Greetings and welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Mike Hove and you're tuned in to Africa News Tonight. In our top story of the day, business has been paralyzed at the Uganda DRC border town of Bunagana following intense fighting between DRC forces and M23 rebels. Ugandan security officials have declared the no man's land at the Ugandan side of Bunagana border a no-go zone for locals and refugees. Security has publicized safe areas where the displaced can take shelter and wait for fighting in DRC to subside. Catherine Nambi reports from VOA. A number of shops and business centers are closed in Bunagana. Residents have deserted the usually busy town, fearing a spillover of the violence. Gunshots from the fighting in Congo can be clearly heard. Ismail Ndiyambaje is the mayor of Bunagana Town Council. He confirms that residents have scattered to safer areas. Uh, the war which is taking place in Congo has affected most of the business people in Bunagana Town Council. Even my, my people around here in Bunagana, most of them they, uh, they have just gone like in something like 7 kilometers from here, from Bunagana. Business people have closed it. And- Security officials are not allowing any residents or refugees in Uganda to access the no man's zone at the border. Eli Mate is the area police spokesperson. He says the area is being used for security meetings and screening of those fleeing the fighting. Strategically, we are planning, the forces are here to plan. And that's why we have agreed that there is no, this area is no go what? Zone for these other people. We want them specifically where they have been allocated to be. They leave security personnel to plan from so that whoever is seen here, uh, either he's part of the, the, the planning unit, if he's somebody of uh, Ill, Ill, Ill intentions, then he's held responsible for that. Uganda government denies reports that its army has joined the DRC forces to repulse the M23 rebels. Captain Mugisha Peter is the outgoing Chisoro District Resident Commissioner. Mugisha, who also heads the Security Committee, insists that the army is only guarding Ugandan territory against possible infiltration by the militia. Of course we must keep security. We must keep our borders. And those are our Polish borders. You wanted these, you wanted these people to enter our country? To keep the security of our, of our people. And this is why we are, we are here. So for us, we did not enter there. Uganda has withdrawn road equipment that had been taken to DRC for road construction following a memorandum of understanding between the two countries. Brigadier General Felix Kulaije is the Uganda Army spokesperson. He says road construction will resume once the place is secured. The fighting that started on Sunday has continued in the DRC. Thousands fled into Uganda. This is Catherine Nambi. For VOA News in Kampala. In more M23 related news, the United Nations says eight of its peacekeepers were killed yesterday when a UN helicopter crashed in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo amid fighting between M23 rebels and the DRC military. The helicopter was carrying six crew members from the Pakistani military and two military personnel, one from Russia and one from Serbia, from the Monosco peacekeeping operation in the region. The aircraft was on a reconnaissance mission when it went down in North Kivu province. The UN says that the circumstances of the crash are still under investigation. 
A new report on the human rights situation in the Central African Republic says combating impunity is key to achieving national reconciliation and a durable peace in the war-torn country. The report from a UN investigator was submitted to the UN Human Rights Council on Monday. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The report says atrocities and human rights violations continue to be committed by various armed groups in the Central African Republic, including by the mainly Muslim ex-Selika, the largely Christian anti-Balaka, and Faka, the armed forces of the CAR. UN investigator Yahweh Betze accuses them of pillaging and looting villages and of threatening the civilian population with violence to exact illegal taxes. He expresses particular concern about reports of ongoing human rights abuse by Russian mercenaries employed by the Wagner Group, a private security company which reportedly has close ties with FACA. He says witnesses have reported many crimes perpetrated by the mercenaries. Agbetse told the council they include sexual violence, intimidation, destruction of homes, racketeering and torture. He speaks through an interpreter. The Russian bilateral forces have also hindered investigations where violations of human rights were committed. As regards contractual relations with the CAR under international law, the Russian bilateral forces uh, are not a recognized international body. Therefore, said Agbetse, the responsibility for violations falls on the Central African Republic government, which must take all measures to achieve justice for the victims. In response, CAR Minister of Justice Jubai Abazene told the UN Council that his government is making major reforms. He says that it is improving the security sector and has a new judicial and court system which is working to shed light on allegations of human rights abuse. He speaks through an interpreter. Investigations are now open for all presumed allegations in cases of human rights violations, whoever the perpetrators may be and whatever their positions may be. They will be brought to justice and punished. You can be reassured of that. The president of the CAR, Truth, Justice and Reparations Committee, Marie-Edith Duzima, said 87% of the population thinks it is possible to have lasting peace in the CAR providing those responsible for violence are punished. She said it is vital to combat impunity for the CAR to find a way out of the repeated crises afflicting the country. She noted that to date, no victims of sexual or other crimes have received compensation and reparations. That wrong, she added, must be rectified. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. A new report says more than 5 million Zimbabweans, a third of the populace, faces acute food insecurity due to another poor rainfall season and a witch's brew of other factors. Eddie Gondo gives us more on the story. The International Monetary Fund says the country is being buffeted by high inflation and exchange rate fragilities in addition to the poor rains this agricultural season which have severely battered crop production. After a bumper crop last year, the scant precipitation of recent years is back. The weakening local currency is officially trading at 138 Zimbabwe dollars to the U.S. greenback and about 260 Zimbabwe dollars on the parallel market. Analysts say salaries and wages can't match galloping inflation. The government has been locked in long-standing wage disputes with its civil service, which complains inflation is so bad that workers can't afford to go to their jobs. 
to avert continued industrial action. It resorted last month to paying them US $100 every month on top of their Zimbabwe dollar-denominated wages. Economic analyst Kipson Gundane says other factors add to the problem. Evidently, most of the crop is failing. What worsens the Zimbabwean situation is over-reliance on natural rains, despite the country having abundant water bodies. There is need to enhance the irrigation capacity of the farmers. The IMF said one of the country's most urgent tasks is to implement currency stabilization. Gundani concurs. The current issue has been a perennial challenge. Sources of uh, the current erosion is predominantly the wanton money creation by the central government. Secondly, there's a spiral decline orchestrated by a perpetuated indexing of prices to the exchange rate. And uh, that uh, narrates the level of confidence crisis that we have in this country. Though agreeing with the IMF about the food insecurity projection, economic analyst Reggie Shoko has is a somewhat different take on the situation. I've gone through what the IMF is worried about. We also have to take into consideration that last year we had a bamba harvest, so our stocks in terms of uh, food are still adequate, although they won't sustain us throughout the year to the harvest of the next year. But for it to be looked at the figures or estimation of it, of 5 million facing starvation, I think it's way too much given the uh, the effects of the harvest that we had last year. Also, it's too early to determine this season as a write-off, in my own view. Shoko concedes that other factors, including politics, will come into play. And also given that we're also already in the election season, government will take away its uh, economic bearings and focus more on politicking more than anything else. So stability of the economy at this moment and this year and the next 24 months, it's something that is not foreseen, especially with the culture we have in terms of doing things for political expediency during election season. Gundani believes a number of interventions could help mitigate the situation contain currency manipulation but pursuing the right currency management regime where its pricing is left to self-discover what economists call benign neglect. Secondly, we need to deal with the tax burden. With a tax to GDP of over 25%, it is not developmental. It leaves people with very little disposable income or money to save to arrest inflation by targeting what I can call confidence-boosting factors. Things like speaking economic sense, it's key. It gives signals. Economic analysts are unanimous that a country that cannot feed itself is vulnerable to external shocks. Reporting for VOA, this is Adigondo in Blawayo, Zimbabwe. A movement wanting to drive millions of illegal migrants out of South Africa has been given a boost with the release of its leader from jail after he allegedly instigated an attack on the home of a suspected drug dealer. Ironically, the alleged criminals, a South African citizen and a member of South Africa's third biggest political party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, the EFF. Darren Taylor reports. Operation Dudula leader, Nkhlankhla Lax Dlamini, emerged triumphantly and defiantly from a Johannesburg court. A magistrate granted the highly educated entrepreneur 
bail for a few minor criminal charges, including vandalizing property. This is the time. There's no other time. This is the time that we live and die for our people. 35-year-old Glamini, a qualified hotelier, was wearing his now customary camo military uniform and bulletproof vest. Bellowing into a microphone, he claimed the African National Congress government was useless at preventing crime and even more useless at stopping undocumented foreigners from stealing jobs and other scarce resources from South Africans. We have now nowhere else to go and we have no one else to save us. The generation that's coming after us is too drunk, it's too high and it's playing PlayStation and it's smoking hardly for it to do anything. So if we fail right now, we have failed the black nation forever. Clamini called on all brave and capable citizens to take lawful action against illegal migrants and criminals in their communities, including making citizens' arrests. He says his brief incarceration has encouraged him to expand Dudula's activities across South Africa, including to the province of KwaZulu-Natal. This is where Daniel Dunia leads the Africa Solidarity Network, which represents African migrants. The migrants in general, we are living in fear. We don't know when will be our last time to leave. We don't know if we wake up tomorrow, and therefore we are calling the South African government to protect those who are legal in the country, and especially refugees and asylum seekers. Dunia isn't convinced that Dudula's targets are solely undocumented migrants. He points out that when the operation moves into an area, its supporters and hangers-on don't bother to establish whether someone's a legal resident. They simply attack anyone they identify as deserving of assault. Operation Dudula, they are just criminals. And them coming to KwaZulu-Natal, they are coming with the same intention which we saw in other areas. If there's a need of identifying those who are legal and those who are not legal, that should be the work of the law enforcement. The police, the Department of Home Affairs, that will be welcomed. But if it's a bunch of criminals who want to take law in their own hands, it makes people to fear for their lives. The Patriotic Alliance Party is a strong backer of Operation Dudula. With its South Africans First slogan and anti-migrant platform, it's also winning popularity around the country and cutting into EFF support. Alliance Deputy Leader Kenny Kunene accuses EFF Commander-in-Chief Julius Malema of being behind Dlamini's arrest. The ANC-led government is afraid of Julius Malema. He makes utterances. He says he might kill white people in the future. In a court of law, he does not get arrested. It means that he has the power over this government. He has power over ministers in this government, but he doesn't have power over us. Kunene contends that for a long time, Malema was the only young, charismatic, firebrand politician in South Africa. Now that Dlamini is challenging him, says Kunene, Malema feels threatened. The EFF leader denies playing a role in Dlamini's arrest. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg.
The Egyptian pound plunged nearly 17% in value against the US dollar last week, following a rise in inflation and amid mounting economic hardships. Central Bank Governor Tariq Amir said the depreciation came to safeguard foreign exchange liquidity and the confidence of foreign investors. The World Bank has warned that a 30% rise in food prices in Egypt could result in a 12% increase in poverty rates, already hovering at about a third of Egypt's 103 million strong population. Sheriff Othman, an Egyptian-American economist, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohammed Al-Shinawi the reasons behind these hardships. I believe the spike in food prices is caused by two main factors. One of them is related to the war in Ukraine that caused the supply of wheat mainly to be short at these times. And of course, everybody knows that Russia and Ukraine were the wheat basket for the world. Uh, the, the war is expected to put some pressure on supply of wheat and other crops to the world. The other factor is related to the devaluation that the Egyptian pound witnessed over the past week, which is more than 15%. I personally believe that the two reasons are not isolated from the war, but they also show how the government of Egypt put the destiny of such an essential good or commodity on foreign countries and on hot money that actually was the main reason for the devaluation of the currency last week. Egypt is bogged down by a sizable debt bill that constitutes almost 90% of GDP and debt services in Egypt until 2025 would reach $72 billion. Experts say the Egyptian debt crisis is further exacerbated by squandering of those loans and spending on non-productive and non-profitable projects. What could that lead to? Actually, the foreign debt constitutes only 35% of GDP. It's total national debt that is almost 90% of the GDP. And the high debt service in both uh, local and external debt puts a lot of pressure on an already troubled budget in the country. The burden of the debt service comes at the expense on expenditure that is directed to education, health services, and social security. And these three points are already in trouble in Egypt, as everybody knows, and as was mentioned by the Egyptian president. The problem of the foreign debt is double that caused by local debt because it puts pressure not only on the budget, but on the local currency as well. The debt interest on current levels of foreign debt is like $6 billion every year. So this amount is added to the external debt every year without doing anything in the development project that were hoped to get some foreign currency to the country. On the other side, the borrowing in the foreign currency also adds to the pressure on the current account, and this increases the problem that the country is facing in terms of pressure on the currency, the uh, deficit in the, the balance of payments. So it's much more than the amounts that we're borrowing, as everybody was expecting. These amounts should be directed to activities that provide foreign currency to the country. This did not happen. The amounts that we received from such loans were directed to close the gap in the current account and to increase imports from the world. And this is not acceptable at current levels and at the pressures we're seeing on the currency and on the budget and on our standards of living for the Egyptian. I know some countries use these foreign loans in making economic development, but this did not happen in the Egyptian case. The amounts we are borrowing that are increasing all the time are adding 
to the problems of Egypt and put the country in the debt trap, which actually prevented other countries from making true economic development for years and maybe for decades. So what's the way out of the debt crisis in Egypt? I personally believe that there is no way out except by closing or the gap in the current account. And this happens only by uh, limiting imports for some time to raw materials and intermediate goods and putting a solid trade policy to increase exports from Egypt to the world. That was Sheriff Otman, an Egyptian-American economist, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohammed Al-Shinawi. Their discussions in the United States government about increasing defensive aid to Somalia. Yesterday, Palestine Iman with VOA's Somali service spoke with the U.S. ambassador to Mogadishu, Larry Andre, about those discussions and about the country's election process. So any uh, additional military uh, cooperation that we wish to offer uh, the Somali people to defend themselves, uh, it would uh, require the coordination and uh, approval of the appropriate Somali authorities. So no such decision has been made at this time. uh, And when that time comes, uh, it would be an offer on our part that the Somali authorities would decide um, uh, if there was a need for it. um, And we would leave it at that. So how U.S. is helping Somali government to fight with al-Shabaab? We are involved in uh, several different ways. Um, One uh, is through training um, uh, the uh, American people through the Department of State um, and through the Department of Defense uh, have uh, very experienced and highly capable um, uh, contract trainers. Um, also direct uh, training my members of our military uh, so that uh, the, the Danab unit of the Somali uh, National Army uh, is able to be as effective as they are um, against those who wish uh, to cause harm uh, to uh, Somali people. Uh, we also work uh, with other um, uh, cooperation uh, with the other parts of the Somali National Army, with the uh, uh, Somali National Police, uh, working with uh, the judiciary, uh, prosecutors. So it's not purely a military effort. Let us uh, look on the elections in Somalia. What do you think should happen now that almost 90% of the parliamentarians have been elected? Uh, The uh, the part of the uh, federal government of Somalia that has the task of uh, managing the uh, electoral process, uh, they announced um, that the swearing in of of the newly elected uh, members of the House of People and um, uh, of the uh, the Senate as well, I believe, the the upper house, uh, will start on uh, the 14th of April. Now, that doesn't mean that the uh, that all the, the, the seats will necessarily be filled by then. We hope they will be. Um, but uh, uh, for any seats that are filled after um, the uh, process has begun to swear in the newly elected parliamentarians, um, they can continue. So uh, we don't, um, it seems that the thinking of, of the body uh, responsible um, in the federal government, uh, Somalia, to manage the electoral process is that they should not wait any longer. And those who have already been elected uh, should get sworn in and uh, so they can start preparing to do their duty. That was U.S. Ambassador to Somalia. He was speaking with VOA's Palestine Iman via Skype from Mogadishu. 
And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Mike Hove in Washington, D.C. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing The Voice of America. you the best in African music on the African beat. African beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music from bobo music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, afrobeat to ndombolo and makosa to kwaito. The African beat on VOA has it all and it's happening right here Mondays through Fridays at 0905